This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our own humanity. And right now we are exploring For All Mankind and my second part of Behind the Curtain on this series. We'll have more secrets and challenges in making this series in a moment. Jay Red, visual effects supervisor, and Stephen McNutt, who is a cinematographer, talk about simulating the moon. We tried to go to the moon to shoot it, but it turned out to be pretty complicated to get it. That was a hard one. Cater- catering was the biggest problem on the moon. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Um, well, I got to say that uh, we worked really heavily and closely with Stephen and Ross on this. Um, the the, sh- the short version is that we built kind of a sandbox by, you know, what was it, 70 feet by 120 feet or something in a giant warehouse um, in an old Boeing airplane repair warehouse at Long Beach. And that was our biggest stage where it was literally kind of like going on into a sandbox. And Dan Bishop and his team, the production designer, would build boulders. And we had this gray gravel gray sand that looked like the regolith from the moon so it had that similar color to based on all the photographs and and evidence that was brought back from the apollo times and steven put up a giant giant sunlight was that thing 100k light am i wrong yeah yeah Yeah. that was 100k single go ahead no i was going to say that in, in when we started researching that uh and we were checking out the color of the ground and all that kind of stuff we realized it was the challenge that we were going to have obviously is making the uh the sunlight work for us because there is only one light the the real effort was getting it far enough away from the set because the further the light is away the more even the light is over a larger distance i mean the sun is 93 million miles away so the lights, the intensity of the light on the ground is the same as the intensity up in the stratosphere. It's all the same level because it's so far away. It spreads out. The closer it is, the hard, more fall off. So I could be standing here and I'd be bright and I could be standing here and I could be dark. So we had, that was a big challenge. So once we got that up mm-hmm. and then the other challenge was cutting the light off of everything. And so, uh, my key grip, Kurt Griebel and John Warner, the uh, rigging grip, uh, they built this giant iris, if you will. So if I, my face is or my eyes are the light, all around here was a giant black, which would come in levels all the way toward you. And so that in the end, the only light from that 100,000 watt soft sun would fall on the surface of the moon and not around it. So that you would help with Jay getting his cuts and black, keep the blacks off. And he was constantly yelling at us, um, uh, uh, get that off that wall, uh, get it off the ceiling. And so it's, it, was a, it was fun. It was a challenge to, 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 to do that. That was the biggest challenge really it was cutting the light because the light was all you have is that. Yeah, and you might notice in some of the footage or some of the photographs is that we don't shoot, most of the time on the moon, we don't shoot against blue screen or green screen. You know, that's, it's very typical to see in visual effects shots is, you know, it's green and blue everywhere. Well, we didn't want to do that because the, there's no air on the moon, right? There's no atmosphere. So unlike Earth, which is like I'm looking outside right now, there's a blue sky and there's light bouncing and everything on the moon. First, you get one light and all it reflects is off the ground. That's it. So the sky is always black on the moon. So we didn't want to have a bunch of blue and green contamination on Jill's awesome suits. And so we shoot with black 
And then we have artists who meticulously trace around legs and feet per frame, rotoscoping as it's called, which is tracking per frame around objects and then extending the backgrounds, CG Hills, Shackleton Crater, putting Jamestown, et cetera. So it's a meticulous effort, but uh, yeah, we have great footage and sometimes we like the lens flares. Sometimes we like the dust in the air, sometimes not. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of challenge and a lot of people contributed to the look of it. Jay Red, visual effects supervisor, I'm working with COVID always looming. That probably hits us a little differently. I know that from visual effects, it's very similar. Like a lot of our studios are still working from home. Um, we have a lot of Zoom meetings like this <laughs> with our teams, right? Um, we were just talking about that before. Is like, is lots of creative meetings happen online now, which would normally we'd be gathering in conference rooms or on the sets. Um, yeah, so a lot of it is a lot of our protocols are the same as when we started shooting, I guess, last summer, right? In the middle of the pandemic even coming out of it. So, Stephen, what else do you want to add? But on the on the set, I guess I'm probably one of the only people here that live on the set. Uh, and and um, we had a lot, of, a lot of issues when we came back uh, because it was all so new and no one knew what was going on, uh, that we were only able to have a certain number of background extras in. Uh, we couldn't, when we shot into Mission Control, we had to do layers of people and then uh, and or else keep them far enough away and we could only have six or seven people we did put some layers in right didn't we did we put margo yeah in a couple we, times a couple times we did that i know i think it's all so mulled up <laughs> and so that was big an issue we can't use atmosphere anymore because everybody's afraid even though there's a data out sheet out there and i'll say this there's a data sheet out there that shows that the that the atmospheric smoke that we use actually kills the virus and they use it in hospitals but nobody wants to believe me i don't know why <laughs> i believe uh anyway <laughs> it, it, it was uh <laughs> but it's true that that we have and we still have that problem now I mean, we have a limited number of people. We can only have a number of crew in there. So if I have to ha add something in there, I have to t uh, I have to walk somebody else out while somebody walks in, fix something. Then as they walk out, the other person walks in. Uh, and, of course, then the actors, they don't have masks on. And they take advantage of that, I think. But uh, we, uh, we, we have to wear masks all the time. And we have, when we're around them, we wear zone A and zone Bs. All of that kind of stuff is still there. And it's in full force. So and when we yeah, we'll continue it, that way through the end of the shoot. Sorry, Jill, go ahead. I was just going to say in, in season two at the end of the show, you know, I remember we were going to film in um, the cemetery over yeah. in Westwood. And they said, mm -hmm. well, you can only have 10 people there at one time and that includes your actors and your crew so they ended up tiling a lot of um different people in in funeral wear that i think were added in later correct jay yeah we did some we did a couple of tiles and we also scanned and took pictures of some of your people in funeral dress and put some digital people walking in the distance too it's mm -hmm. cool. a combination yeah. yeah yeah so that's that, those are challenges and they still remain to be challenges Everywhere we go when we want to shoot, if there's another company there, they may not be able to have two companies there. So you know, all kinds of different things will happen once we get rid of this thing. Maybe if we ever get rid of this thing, it'll be a whole lot better. Interesting little challenge here, heating up things on the moon. In the script, um, when I first met with Ron, there was a, there's a line in the script that says, uh, the surface of the moon boils. 
So it was a really interesting way to approach and how to interpret that. Um, and so Ron had explained to me, he said he imagined it in his mind like little, you know, like radioactive raindrops on the moon, except you couldn't see them, um, right? Because there's no rain on the moon. But what would, what would you know, radiation look like when it's the, the biggest solar event that they've, we've ever recorded in our episode? Um, what would that look like if it's disturbing the, the dust on the moon? So we actually looked into some, some research and some history of what's happened. There are Apollo astronauts that uh, when flying back from the moon would actually see as the sun was setting or rising would see a little bit of dust right on the horizon. Even though when you're on the moon, you don't see any dust in the air. And so there was a lot of theory and speculation about electrostatic energy levitating the dust off the ground. Right. And so we kind of ran with that. I ran with that and started thinking like, okay, what if this were a thousand times more energy or more radiation, more electrostatic electricity that could levitate or add ripples? And so I started looking at, you know, sand dunes, water moving over, over sand over time in the rivers. We started looking at sound waves that if you've ever seen the videos of sound that can manipulate sand on a plate and they're called somatics and it makes these really interesting patterns at different tones. So I started thinking, well, everything is a wave. I'm getting kind of nerdy here, but everything is a sound wave. Everything is an energy wave. And so we thought, well, what if we started adding ripples into it? Because the radiation is something that you, you, you don't really feel while it's happening and you don't see it. It is this silent killer. But we thought we can't play the sequence without anything there. That's not going to be very exciting. So I put together a little pitch document for Ron and the other EPs about ripples, sound waves, spikes, um, electricity looks, that kind of thing. And we started dialing things in over many weeks. Um, I did some paintings, started showing some tests, and we ended up at this, of this feeling of something that feels kind of serene and beautiful, but also close up. It's full of these spikes that can actually like, spike you with energy. And so Molly is running through that the entire time. We wanted it to be tangible and also beautiful. So it was a really delicate balance and every shot is different. Every shot had to have a special um, kind of dialing in and look to it. Um, and all of those effects have to be put in the visors too. So it's a really complex scene, but um, many, many delicate artists had their hands on it. There's more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. Here's more sci-fi talk with Tony Tolato. You know, you don't think about it, but there is only one light source on the moon. And what about the stars, too? The brightness on the moon is extremely bright. And so, obviously, your eye shuts down. And uh, you really don't see many stars um, when you're on the surface of the moon. When you're inside a lit room, you don't tend to see the stars outside the room like you don't see even on Earth. Here, you look out if your room is lit, you don't see the stars. My argument were, and I think we did finally ultimately put some stars in. But when we would go, when we would go down to Shackleton Clay Crater, or when we were out of the moon, out of the light, my pitch was to raise the stuff, put the stars. We have been putting some stars in, haven't we? Um, uh, Jay, I know we have been periodically, but because it, it makes more sense to me if you're if you're out in space and you're doing a, a, a spacewalk, you'd see the stars because there's no light on you. But then right. again, but that that was that was definitely a bone of contention. They didn't want but did not want any stars. And uh, so yeah, we I think it's worked. I think the compromise has worked and we do see them periodically in, in the real in the real sense of it. But on the moon, it's so bright that you uh, you don't see uh, the starlight. 
we had a little a little loose rule book to person to, to go off Stephen's comment is that um, when we would go to you know in episode ten to the unlit side of the moon the dark side of the moon that's when we would imagine the exposure would come up a little bit and you know when you go outside you find your eyes finally adjust and you can say oh there they are so that's you know when we're when we don't have direct sun on things we would use that as a good guide to say well let's see the stars now let's see the because stars. it's also you kind of want to, it's hard to know where you are in space if you don't have something in the background, right? And so we were in these really dark scenes. And you notice this in episode one as well, before the sun comes up, you get to see the stars. And then when the sun rises, we take that exposure down as just as Stephen mentioned, and then the stars go away. And it's really based on how our eyes work and how photography works. So I think it, I think it flows pretty well. Yeah. But yes, lots of discussion about when we see them and when we don't. Yeah. And we still do, even in season three, we're still talking about it. And we hear from Stephen McNutt and also Jay Red, in addition to John Milo Train, who is the sound designer. Guys, great to talk to you. Uh, being that this is an alternate history and not recreating something that actually happened, it's a mixture of, of, of history and alt history. Speak to the freedoms you had, like even in like fashion, special effects, and even sounds that you could create something that was unique to this show and not be kind of trapped in the historical perspective of it. <laughs> that, that's a tough. That's a tough question. Um, I think we did what we needed to do um, with within the story and the spirit of the scene. Uh, we were also pulled back quite often about that wouldn't be this way and that wouldn't be that way. But um, I don't think we really had too many restrictions um, other than architecture and um, certain elements of technology that would not have been there. Because we, we're sticking with the reality of, a you know, 85, even though we're on the moon. Uh, it, uh, we're, we're just taking our, our technology from that time and putting it on the moon uh, and then just taking the license of saying, well, we got all kinds of gizmos in there that allow us to do that, that we didn't have, but uh, we still have, uh, you know, this is, we, we still don't have a laptop computer that, you know, so that's kind of, it's kind of a gray area and uh, mm-hmm. you know, they take advantage of that. And we, we talk about, everything don't we almost yeah. like we talk about all the details and everything is a choice nothing shows up on screen accidentally like oops we didn't think about that it's like everything gets discussed i mean yeah. i'll say from a visual effects standpoint like we start with the rules and then we bend and break them kind of where we need to but it's always great to have a a, a technical and a reality foundation yeah. then we can say well you know maybe the sun's a little higher just because it looks better that's right. right. Or we're going to sh- film a part of the ship that you could never get to historically, but let's, let's show this and maybe play with physics a little bit to, to really bring the drama out in something. And sometimes the, 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 the situation gets a little bit strange, I guess, but we're, uh, we're, I'll, I'll choose a light. I'll say, listen, I'd like to put this light or have this light in the scene. And then I'm told, uh, well, that's really not part of the, the, uh, the t- time frame, but we're on the moon. So, so you go, okay, well, so we have, you know, we have to follow a certain, we're following a certain path of reality 
in our world that we remember in the 80s or whatever, but we're taking it and putting it into a, an expanded universe, which seemingly it, it works. It gives it a, an odd feel. So I, I think that's a good thing. One of the fun things about sound is that, uh, you know, we have records of what a lot of these things look like, right? We don't have really any good records of what they sounded like. Uh, right. that aren't it, that isn't coming through you know radio hash on communication so <laughs> we had uh we really had to build everything from scratch and it began with vince and karen uh our wonderful effects editor uh, sort of talking about what are the technical things that need to happen you know say we're in jamestown or uh you know we're in some other environment what do they need they need air they need power they you know uh, there's a the shot going through the lab where um, Tracy kind of first discovers that there's, you know, a lab and potentially alcohol. Uh, we have uh, centrifuges and other lab equipment playing that we use later on throughout the show to kind of give more texture to Jamestown. But all of that has to be built based on a, a conversation of, you know, what do they need? What are we going to hear? Um, because none of it exists. You know, the, the set itself is as silent as we can make it. Um, and then, you know, a kind of a smaller point of that, which I, I think is a lot of fun is the interplay between uh, flight control and, uh, and Dodcom. Um, the idea is that in, in the defense control space um, that we kind of move off to the side every once in a while into all the equipment that's in flight control has got to get wedged into this closet. And it's kind of your standard military solution of, well, give us everything. We'll figure out a broom closet to stick it into and a guy to manage it and it'll be fine. And, uh, and so we get to play that sort of interplay of, okay, now this 80 foot space is wedged into a, a broom closet. And maybe there's some other communications equipment that we're not supposed to know about whizzing away, but we don't really care about those guys hearing. So it's fine. We'll just, you know, it's going to be loud. It's going to be hot. It's going to work. Speaking of sounds, here is Vince Balunas, sound designer, and what helped him to design the sounds in his experience for all mankind. Battlestar probably was the biggest uh, help uh, in doing this one. And then also a little show called Astronaut Wives Club that I did uh, for ABC. Um, and actually that related to the first season a lot. Um, it literally, we got into Karen's house and like, this looks exactly like the other show. Um, it was kind of crazy. Um but uh you know a lot of that communication um of uh i remember actually on that show um abc said we couldn't use a lot of the uh radio communications even though it was uh, uh available from nasa to use for whatever purpose you wanted um you weren't allowed to use it per abc so i had to figure out how to replicate some of the most famous speeches from the moon um that you know that existed. So I basically kind of got a lot of toys, um, uh, outboard gear, and then also uh, plugins to manipulate the radio communications to make it sound as most possibly accurate as possible. And then once that happened, uh, we learned we couldn't understand anyone, anything anyone was saying. So we kind of had to dial back the reality as some of the other guys are saying. Um, it's like, you know, uh, the reality is one thing and then TV drama is a different thing. So uh, I think a lot of that, uh, uh, those older shows uh, helped a lot in kind of developing uh, what we have now for radio communication and just kind of the overall uh, design of, of space. Special thanks to Apple TV Plus 
Look for all of the seasons of For All Mankind on Apple TV+. And there's also a part one of For All Mankind Behind the Curtain as well, so stay tuned for that. This is Tony Tolado. Thanks for listening. Scene one, Apple take two.